back, guys, to another episode of um, Presidente, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents, their ups and downs, and what they did in their presidency and how history looks back on them. As always with me, the man that actually writes out the scripts, does the research. I just sit back and enjoy. Neil, how's it going? It's going well. It's going okay. Um, this is, I hope that this is a, a decent follow-up to, to part one. Uh, it's, it's very hard to tackle uh, a whole Reagan presidency, but we're going to try to do it. Yeah, yeah we, got, we got 45 minutes of content in part one. I just edited it. Edited it. it took like four and a half hours, five hours to edit. Um, but I was like laughing while I was editing because I noticed that we talked for 45 minutes and we barely got to his election in, in California. So we have a lot, Neil. We have a lot on our plate for part yes. two. And so, you know, we're, we're going to start back up in a timeline with Reagan uh, winning his first election as the newly elected governor of California in 1967, uh, kind of just where we left off in, in part one. And, and at the time, you know, California was the second largest state in the country by population behind New York and was only continuing to grow, you know, at a colossal rate. Uh, Reagan's win is an extraordinary surprise for Republicans because it's dominated by Democrats in their state legislature. Um, you know, they, they hadn't had a Republican governor there in a decade. And even someone like Nixon, who we mentioned in the last episode, couldn't win the, the governorship. So this win caught a lot of people's attention and, and gave Reagan, you know, the political finesse he needed to, to later become president. And, you know, part of what people tend to miss, even as Reagan's rhetoric in some ways, you know, helps spur Republicans away from compromising as a party in the 21st century, is that, you know, he was willing to actually make a lot of concessions to get partial victories as a politician in this in this era. Um, and as we mentioned in other episodes, that's something that didn't used to be so unique. You know, presidents like Richard Nixon and even Bill Clinton signed major pieces of legislation that were more geared towards the policy platforms of the other party. If you think about the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency in, in 1970 and the crime bill in 1994, um, you know, presidents throughout the 20th century in general had the ability to do way more within Congress than they can in the past 15 years. So it was much more worthwhile to them to make these concessions in order to obtain more capital later for other legislative priorities. Now, I mean, but it also it also has to do with I don't want to say that you're framing it in a way that it's the president's fault, but I feel like Senate and House back then used to be more aware that they're part of their system. Now it's us against them mentality. Yes, yes. Um, that's a good point. You know, I don't think that um, something like the filibuster um, was really fully, um, appre well, I use appreciated in the way that like, it's just taken advantage of so much more today than it was back then as a tool to curb legislation from being passed. Um, and so, you know, that, that becomes, again, more of a problem here in the 21st century. But, I mean, there really is much more harmony taken for granted in this era than what we see today. So if you contrast that with the three, you know, administrations, if you contrast, you know, Reagan's era with the three administrations of Obama, Trump, and Biden, you know, there's really only three to four nationally significant pieces of legislation that have been passed through Congress. Um, Obama had the stimulus and the Affordable Care Act. Trump had a big one with, you know, his, his tax cut plan in 2017. And Biden has, you know, one now with the American Rescue Plan. And, you know, that could very well be his last piece or major piece of legislation he passes if he gets two terms. And, you know, the gridlock within our parties is so much more real now than ever was in the past, you know, even 150 years. And so Reagan has a lot to do with that, even as he did his part to compromise fairly often. You know, Americans, you know, I would argue just to start out, you know, this episode um, with the rise of Reagan are, are shifting or, you know, maybe being you know manipulated to shift their political beliefs around how issues are being communicated slash framed by politicians, you know, much more than just, you know, specifically focusing on what policy wise sounds most sensible or practical. You know, you you get the evidence of what of, sorry, you get evidence of that right as uh, Reagan takes over his governorship with how he approaches student protests of the Vietnam War at UC Berkeley and San Francisco Community College. You know, he's got a 
quality for being, you know, provocative. And I say quality in like quotations here um, and, and punchy with his language. You know, uh, when he speaks about protesters as governor, he's quoted by saying, you know, their, their sign said make love, not war, but it didn't look like it didn't look like they could do either. And so, you know, as we mentioned in the last episode, um, he often frames protesters as bums and who people who don't want to work and just live on welfare. And beyond the rhetoric takes hostile steps to end protests by sending in a National Guard to the Berkeley and in, in um, San Francisco campuses. You know, his policy achievements, on the other hand, as governor of California, very much fall into the status quo of what any moderate of what any moderate politician would back. You know, he even leans into more progressive choices within his governorship. He blocked construction projects that would destroy, you know, perished or sorry, cherished parts of California's wildlife throughout his first term. And he even signed into the creation of, you know, Redwood National Park in 1968. He campaigned on cutting the size of the California state government by proposing drastic, you know, budget cuts as part of his plan to cut. Um, you know, the budget deficit in the state, but actually shifted a lot of that plan by instead raising taxes to provide revenue needed to balance the state budget. Again, this is more so going, you know, with the status quo. And, and most surprisingly, you know, he actually compromised on welfare reform in 1971 uh, with passing the welfare, welfare Reform Act. And so benefits to folks on, on government system, assistance with this act uh, actually increased with this new legislation. And with a Democratic concession only being that eligibility for welfare assistance became modestly more strict. So it's looking like at this point, we're uncovering a more innovative and successful strategy that Reagan is formulating, you know, by taking an us versus them approach to communicating, you know, on, on more cultural issues in the media, such as, you know, anti-Vietnam you know, War protests or more like progressive protests. Um, how, does that, how does he, I have multiple questions. Mm -hmm. um uh, regarding all that you said one um one is not a question one is like more of a statement because it seems like it's the go-to of precedents to use violence against protests because we've already covered a president that even killed protesters mm -hmm. in a grover cleveland when he sent the national guard to break up uh, the union protests this seems like it's almost been accepted as a go-to move uh in politicians to just essentially kill any protest that goes against the, the norm. Second thing is like um, you said that he essentially created a culture in where he looked down upon people that either protest or are on welfare because he said that they, they're not working, they're on welfare, which is a very common statement for politicians, uh, even in in our in my island. Like there is a lot of hatred towards people that can't afford living. And they mm -hmm. have to go on these social programs, which just on itself is kind of, uh, I almost cursed, it's kind of messed up. What I wanted to ask is, since you said that in part one that he was poor growing up, did you, do you know if his family ever suffered to the point that they needed help? Or is that kind of a pride thing that he had? Like, hey, my family was poor. We made it without the government. Why can't you make it without mm -hmm. the government? So. Yeah, it's the latter. I mean, um, his his dad, you know, grew up or like he he couldn't really hold down a job because he was an alcoholic. And so, you know, I think that that, um, you know, that experience that Reagan went through with having an, an alcoholic father actually generated more disdain for people who were poor because he really attributed it to people, it, it being people's own fault that they were poor or being their own fault that they were homeless, that like poverty was a choice um, based off his personal experiences. And so, yeah, you know, I think that that Reagan has a tough time really empathizing with the situation because he had such a, a story of, you know, rising up through the ranks and, and not really holding on to that experience growing up. I think that, you know, he thought that, you know, like his family or his mom was like the most like, kind person he ever met and he never even knew that he was poor because of her because you know she was just like you know a good mom to him in that way but you know at the same time like he still had more support um because of just like being um like growing up in a generation where like you know again like they were just like a, a family that had more opportunity to get out of the situation that they were in 
then like the families or like the people that he's talking about within like, you know, who he's referring to as bums and, you know, kind of just categorizing as people who don't deserve government benefits. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to, to get through to, I think, people who think that other people are just like lazy in their situation. And so I can imagine that Reagan would be a difficult person to have that conversation with. Um, yeah, the, the lack of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously we, we have to cater the, the, the amount of empathy we have for certain people. Yes, there's there can be instances in where there are people abusing the system and have multiple opportunities to get a better life and they choose to stay where they are because it's comfortable, sure. But the percentage is so low that you cannot, you know, do a blanket statement of all these people suffering for X, Y, or Z. Reagan, I mean, he's he's not known for trying to account for no. that. Definitely. <laughs> he definitely just goes for it. And so, you know, it's looking again, it's looking like at this point we're uncovering, you know, a more innovative and successful strategy that again, like Reagan, I mean, saying that in that it's politically like successful, you know, he's taking an us versus them approach um, and communicating on major issues really coerces people to get on his side to separate himself more distinctly within the Republican Party. But, you know, he's still trying to be efficient in actual governance, which is important if he wants to be president. Now, you know, I don't want to give too much credit to Reagan here because he's not exactly inventing the strategy but he does sort of go on to perfect it in his presidential years. But, you know, we cannot talk about Reagan without diving a little bit into Nixon, um, our 37th president, Richard Nixon, who wins the 1968 election because he really spearheads the cultural divide into the American psyche more profoundly than Reagan is in this period. Nixon is seen as someone who is much more unelectable than someone like Reagan uh, before his presidential win especially for an office like the presidency, you know, just to give a brief overview on Nixon's journey in the story, you know, he was elected uh, senator of California before becoming vice president for the Eisenhower administration in 1953. And then he then uh, wins a Republican nomination for president in 1960, but barely loses a JFK in the general election. And then he loses another election for California governor in 1962. And at that point, the party is ready to turn their back on him. as TV is starting to play a much more significant role at this time in American elections, you know, you start to see it become more common for the average household to have at least one TV. And so that means it's more important than ever for politicians to be charismatic, charming, and to have a you know, more down-to-earth nature, you know, qualities that Richard Nixon, you know, had very little of. I'd recommend, you know, listeners to go on YouTube today and just watch like the 1960 debates between himself and JFK and see how much more at ease JFK is. JFK is and being on stage than Nixon is. And as people can, you know, people can tell he's sweating in the broadcast, even with the poor resolution of those days. So again, this is, he's not very, um, you know, it's a very surprise win in 1968. Um, And so as we discussed in in part one of this episode, you know, the Republican Party of the 1960 lacks a prominent figure that unites the, not only the party itself, but a winning coalition of Americans for a general election. You know, while Nixon has been losing elections in this period, he's still the only household name who has a big enough brand to to challenge a Democratic opponent, which is a huge reason, you know, why he runs again for president in 68. And so Reagan wants nothing more than to be president, but also has a hard time. Sorry, he has like nothing more. He wants nothing more than a Republican to be president, but also has a hard time resisting challenging Nixon in the election, even as he has only been a governor for less than two years and had previously been a Nixon supporter. So he becomes part of the Stop Nixon movement and the Republican Party because there are so many people who are sure Nixon's nomination will guarantee another Democratic win. Nixon, though, is barely bothered by Reagan's presidential run as his campaign has like the innovative foresight to navigate this new world of, of media. Um, you know, Framing his campaign around a cultural choice between chaos and violence and civility and order. You know, he's the first to coin himself as a law and order candidate and champion himself. Nixon? Yes, yes. So this essentially... Like, uh, well, that's interesting because, like, when you think law and order, you think uh, Reagan. No, this is actually the, the the term coined by Nixon as the law and order guy at first. Oh, wow. You know, Reagan really much borrows his his strategy um, later on. But 
Um, you know, Nixon also is the first to champion himself as a candidate of the silent majority of Americans who were over the protests of who were like sorry, over the protests and civil rights movements that were dominated in the 60s. So he refused to take part, you know, in any presidential debates, which probably is a smart choice on his part, and you know, used dark campaign imagery in his commercials to present a sense of fear to Americans of outlandish scenarios of you know what could happen if he didn't win the election and one of his slogans you know being vote like your whole life dependent on it or like your whole world dependent on it actually was the slogan um and so this strategy proves to be surprisingly effective as he hires experts like pat buchanan to navigate his campaign and you also see the rise of figures like roger ailes uh, the ceo of fox news from 1996 to 2016 and who goes on to completely reshape American, you know, political media later in his life, but gets a starting, uh, gets a start working within Nixon's campaign teams. And so Nixon wins the Republican primary over Reagan and then is supported by Reagan and the general and goes on to win over Hubert Humphrey, you know, and that's aided by LBJ turning down the chance to run for another term and a crisis of leadership in the Democratic Party after Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in that same year. And so, you know, Reagan learns from this experience in 68 and gets much closer to winning the Republican nomination in 1976 when he challenges President Gerald Ford. You know, Ford takes over for the office after Nixon resigns from the presidency in 1974 over the Watergate scandal. And, you know, Reagan at this point had been planning to be something of an heir to what Nixon had started after his two terms were up. But the resignation of Nixon lifted Ford into being a much stronger candidate um, as he presided over the presidency for two years before the election had time or before the election. And he had time to cultivate the name recognition need to hold off Reagan. You know, theoretically, Reagan should have never you know, come within reach of winning that primary because incumbent president, impress, sorry, incumbent presidents have such a higher chance of winning elections than new candidates. So, you know, Reagan's challenge in 76 sort of begs the question of why he felt he had the capital to go in against the party's incumbent and, and, and make that move. And the answer to that brings me back to the 1964 election, you know, with the new birth of right-wing conservatism in the party that year. Um, someone we haven't really mentioned um, in this story is Nelson Rockefeller, an East Coast Republican who was the governor of New York from 1959 to 1973. Um, he also ran for president. Um, against uh, George Wallace in that, sorry, George Wallace in, in that election, and, and more so resembled an Eisenhower uh, Republican that represented a progressive direction for the Republican Party if they chose to embrace Rockefeller's vision. Um, but Rockefeller was more supportive of expanding government programs and increased funding for public education and the public humanities as a whole. And he also ran successfully through the Republican nomination in 1968. So this is someone else who's very much in the mix. Um, not sure if I'm like going, you know, off the rails here, but it's just like to frame like what's happening in the Republican Party. It's a crisis of, you know, if they want to go in a conservative or liberal direction here. And so Reagan, along with other Republican conservatives, they, they despise Rockefeller because, you know, he... And they also became further upset because Gerald Ford made him his vice president in 1974. Can I ask the lineage of this Rockefeller? Is this like from the Rockefeller family or just happens to be named Rockefeller? It's a good question. Um, I don't think he's actually from. The, well, he, he could be. I don't. I, yeah, I, I, I actually do not know. I mean, I know Rockefeller is a striking name in that sense, but my guess would yeah. be no. But we we definitely can should clarify later in this episode maybe um, and like i said you know he he became vice president and then, and then again in order to hold reagan off ford actually dropped rockefeller from his ticket in 1976 so he's only vice president for two years and replaced him with bob dole in 1976 and this is the bob dole is a republican nomination mm -hmm. winner in 1996 so there's just a lot of you know like repeat politicians going on here but this was enough you know to get establishment you know behind ford to win the nomination so he's um, the grandson he's the grandson of uh the billionaire uh John okay okay yeah that's that's interesting because he i mean again he's not he's he's more of a um moderate politician within the republican party at this point 
And the, and the Republican Party still at this point is is somewhat moderate. They haven't really gone into this, you know, conservative direction that Reagan's going to leave them on yet. And so this is kind of a battle for that, for the Republican Party at this point. To Reagan's benefit, when Ford beats him out for the 76th primary, you know, Ford loses to the general election to Jimmy Carter that year. And so he would finally have his opportunity to be the front runner to win the Republican nomination in 1980. And, you know, he did not seek another office after he lost the 76th primary. He ends his governorship in California in 1975. And so he successfully lived out the next few years as a, as a public figure who would go on onto TV and, and radio offering his perspective of ongoing political issues. Um, and often complaining about the size of the federal government and that it was too intrusive in American lives. You know, Reagan went through the easiest primary win in decades with, you know, the only serious challenger to the nomination being George H.W. Bush. Um, you know, Reagan won a huge, a huge majority of the primaries and, and went on to face President Carter in the 1980 general election. The 1980 election, it's a little tricky to explain uh, because it's much more complicated than the final results suggest. You know, when just looking at the numbers and in the way, you know, I alluded to the results in the last episode, you know, the, the election was a landslide win for Reagan, but it wasn't always looking to be, you know, that way throughout the year. Carter had a leg up on Reagan with voters on issues of social program protections for Americans and even on the Cold War in some respects. Um, but Reagan had been a long time opponent, you know, of Medicare, something that Carter used to label Reagan as an extremist. And he also tried to reinforce that label by pointing out, you know, strong rhetoric from Reagan to further increase tension and escalation with the Soviet Union. So, you know, Reagan spoke out against arms, arms treaties with the Soviets, and, and Carter said that Reagan would put the nation at risk of entering into a direct war um, with Soviet Union. So at the time, you know, the issues the nation encountered during the Carter administration were too much for him, you know, to overcome, though, as the economy was never, you know, in in entirely good shape throughout his four years and inflation was continuing to be a problem, you know, as well as oil and gas shortages. You know, this is the era that everyone, you know, has been reflecting back to, you know, about a month ago from this recording in regard to like the prices of some of our goods that's taking place now. You know, the car administration had a very difficult time curbing that trend and, and the final nail in the coffin came with the Iran hostage crisis in which 52 Americans were held hostage for 444 days after the U.S. Embassy was invaded in Tehran. Made more famous in the Argo movie that I alluded to in the first episode. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good context uh, movie for what happened during that crisis. Um, but Reagan wrapped up the election in a final debate a week before Americans voted, asking if you know, they were better off than they were four years ago, which is a debate moment that stuck with a large bulk of the nation. And, and captures Reagan's qualities pretty well with being able to employ, you know, those standout punches in times that he needed it. And so we finally will get into, you know, Reagan's presidency. So Reagan's roughly, you know, 20 year quest to the presidency finally comes to fruition for him as he becomes the 40th president of the United States and, and takes office in 1981. And this is completely new territory for our country in a lot of ways, because there really has been no other right-wing politician that has won the presidency up until this point in American history. Not to the same degree that Reagan owned conservatism and that he opposed social progressive movements and social welfare protections, but wanted to give every incentive to businesses to do what they wanted to expand. You know, most presidents had tried to strike a more careful balance on their, their domestic agenda or further increase public spending. But Reagan marked a stark turning point in our country, you know, for, for better or worse. And, you know, this is also a new territory for Reagan in that he had a Congress that was much more willing to entertain his conservative economic principles than the legislator of California had back when he was a governor. And, you know, to be fair to Reagan, he was inheriting a massive inflation problem. So presenting new economic ideas to, to curtail the economic direction of the country were welcomed, you know, from Americans. Uh, Republicans had taken back the Senate for the first time in almost 30 years in 1980. And even though the House was firmly controlled by Democrats, much of that majority was made up of, of Southern Democrats that were more sympathetic to Reagan as he was heavily supported by, by Southerners in, in 1980 election. So, and that is uh, like, that's like the, the ones that we discussed during uh, Lyndon's uh, presidency, correct? Exactly. This is 
he's still like in that 20 year period where there's a shift from, you know, the South going from a democratic, you know, controlled area to Republican. Cause you have those long time older politicians that just won't Dixie change their party. Exactly. Like they just, they've always been a Democrat, even though Democrats now at this point are like the party of, you know, civil rights movements, you know, you still have these long, it's like a weird alliance that takes again, like even 10 more years after this for like the full merge to finally be completed in that sense. And so Reagan's plan to get the economy turned around was to try to radically reduce spending with budget cuts, along with passing huge tax cuts across the board for Americans. He also planned to reduce slash ignore environmental regulations placed on businesses to spur more economic production. And so people have now coined this economic strategy as, as Reaganomics or trickle-down economics. You know, both are kind of used interchangeably. But the goal with these policies was to create more jobs and motivate more Americans to seek work if they saw that they were keeping more money, sorry, more of their money um, in their paychecks. Simultaneously, uh, the hope was also that businesses would have more money to expand and pay for more employees to decrease the unemployment rate. Has Has that honestly ever worked? Like, I feel like every time the government gives leeway to companies so they can spend money on the employment they just get like cfos and ceos getting higher raises and bonuses yeah stockholder and the and the board directors and uh you know stockholders everybody's happy but unemployment stays pretty much the same yeah my personal opinion would also be no but um there's a lot of people who would disagree with us i think because Part of what happens in the 80s here, I, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of like get to this part is that like, you know, Reagan does finally like see economic success within his presidency. And we don't really know exactly where that stems from, but his, you know, trickle down economics theory definitely um, hasn't lost really popularity within that party. And so no. they'll hold some validity. Um, but also Reagan, the, like, yeah. it's kind of hard to pinpoint. Um, obviously, this is a far more complex subject that we can ever cover in this. We're trying to, you know, give a brief summary of Reagan. We're not doing an economic class, but (laughs) it, like, economies across the world go up and down constantly. It's kind of hard to pinpoint, oh, yeah, is this definitely thanks to X or Y president? It's kind of like the flow of of the markets and the flow of, like, especially now that, and during Reagan's time, but also, like, our economies are deeply tied to the rest of the world. So there's so many factors that attribute to how our economy works that is foolish to say that X or Y president saved our economy. Yeah, I mean, mean, a lot of it is a pattern. I think that people don't realize that, you know, the economy is going to go down at some point. Like, you know, we kind of covered that within Hoover's episode is that like you have this period of growth. And then, like, you know, there are definitely policies to, you know, um, make sure that suffering during the downtimes isn't as bad. I think that's kind of like the theme I've been trying to get on with this is that, like, hey, like, when economic production isn't going at the rate that we want it to, we can still, you know, we have enough history within our country to know, you know, what kind of policies would keep our nation afloat and reduce suffering. And so, yeah. I think that that's how I, I kind of tend to try to judge presidents. I mean, some of the, more, I mean, economic policies that we've been covering, like Hoover, again, like Great Depression was pretty unprecedented. Like Reagan during this time, the inflation problem that he's having is pretty unprecedented. And so um, some of it's a little difficult. Reagan was able to put most of his economic agenda into action in 1981 when he passed the Economic Recovery Act of 1981. Um, and this would cut taxes by about 25% in a three-year period. Um, and the big game that he talked about on the budget, though, was actually not followed through on, but instead altered and, and targeted at poor Americans. You know, the budget bill that he passed in 1981 did, did have budget cuts, but it was mainly for many of LBJ's great society programs that were critical to the most impoverished of Americans. His budget actually did not decrease the amount of spending the federal government, you know, did itself. It instead shifted increased spending to the military. As Reagan, you know, he put an unprecedented percentage of the budget into it. 
Um, his justification being that the U.S. was falling behind the Soviets in military capabilities. And so this budget decision, I think, helps us understand, you know, what Reagan really means when he refers to the government spending wastefully and getting too involved in everyone's lives. Because when he's finally able to actually reduce the size of the government, he, he doesn't. Uh, but his beef seems to be with people who he deems as undeserving of government support and the government investing in low-income individuals. You know, Reagan firmly, as I touched on earlier, believed that homelessness was a choice that people made and that being in poverty was, you know, a result of being, you know, lazy and unmotivated to work. And so when the time came, his budget was, again, very specifically targeted in that sense. You know, he didn't cut spending to Medicare or Social Security despite threats to do so. Because, you know, those were popular programs across the board. So, you know, he knew that doing that would be, you know, way too alienating for him to politically survive. And also middle class to wealthier folks kind of benefited from those policies as well. So he had a little interest. He had little interest in eliminating them. Um, he seemed to really only have an interest in making cuts in programs in which he deemed as promoting laziness. And that had drastic consequences on millions of Americans who, who suffer more because of it. I mean, you um, can also see it reflected on his war on drugs, the type of drugs that he targeted, not the the drugs that middle class to upper class would partake, right? Uh, only lower right. class. So, um, yeah, a lot of his actions can you can see. I want to use the word yeah. classist, but that yeah. would be too harsh, maybe for some of our listeners. Um, but. I, the question that I want to ask earlier, and I forgot to ask you, you mentioned that um, a lot of his plans revolved around, you know, helping the corporations. And one of the things that he did was he rolled back um, envi environmental laws. Have have those laws continued to be forgotten or were they re-implemented? No, or I mean, were like they my God, I can't say the word. Or were they uh, implemented back by other presidents? Yeah, it, 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 environmental policy is pretty complicated to like um, decipher because I mean, like you can't get rid of like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, you know, those kinds of laws. Like you can really just like have a different interpretation of how they should be executed. And so like, for example, like if you are going to, I think, you know, like the Trump administration, you know, they interpret the Clean Water Act to only mean like direct like streams and direct like rivers and lakes. And so like you can't pollute into those waterways. You can't like, you know, that's against the law. But businesses like under that interpretation can still pollute into like, you know, surrounding like marshes and like other waterways that flow into those waters some like I would say like you know conservative or people who are more trying to act like they're more friendly to businesses will promote like understanding regulations to mean that it again it's only direct to specific waterways not to the surrounding environment that affects those waterways and then you know again more progressive administrations or yeah I don't want to say like democratic even though I mean yeah that's what I mean um, will restrict access of like promoting construction projects on on all waterways that affect like again our, our main like sources of like water and maintaining clean water and so like that's why it's hard to answer that question is because like really what he means is that or really what that means is that like reagan is just taking a different approach to executing those laws he's taking more lackadaisical approach the combination of increased spending, you know, along with the steep decrease in tax revenue drastically increased the budget deficit and national debt. Um, and to make matters worse, the Federal Reserve Chair at the time, Paul Volcker, had figure out had figured out how to curb inflation, but the solution was was painful for the economy. The Fed had to increase um, slash tighten interest rates, which decreased the potential amount of borrowing for individuals and businesses. But it did bring inflation under control. Um, and so the consequence of that, though, was that the economy dropped into a recession. Uh, unemployment reached modern day lows of 11%, or I guess I would say highs in that case. Um, and all indications were that Reagan's economic policies worsened the impact of increased interest rates and that very few Americans were really benefiting from decreased taxes at this point. And so after two years in office, Reagan's approval rating was at 35%. And he seemed destined to just be routed in the 1984 presidential election. 
Reagan's fortunes turned though, and in nineteen eighty three, it marked the beginning of what is called, you know, the the Reagan boom that lasted until nineteen eighty nine. The GDP increased drastically from nineteen eighty four to nine, sorry, nineteen eighty three to nineteen eighty four. And the unemployment rate improved remarkably as well. Um, Reagan got a lot of credit for this, though many historians point to Volcker being more responsible for his adjustments to managing the interest rate and being more open to printing money through the Federal Reserve. Um, again, interest rates were then decreased in the latter years of Reagan's first term. Um, and to Reagan's credit, he increased taxes in 1982 and 1984 as well to help with the budget deficits in his administration. You know, getting the economic growth was so impressive that he crushed Walter Mondale in the 1984 general election and not really a standout candidate that was a good challenger for him. But he won 49 out of 50 states. And, you know, this trend would continue of economic, you know, um, prosperity throughout his second term as he completed it with the unemployment rate, you know, at an impressive 5.2 percent. You know, the caveat being that, like, people who... You know, who is this again? Who is what is where is this, you know, um boom in economic productivity? Who's that really benefiting? This is also the first period that you see post-World War II where um economic growth is starting to um rise much quicker for people who are like the richest in our country compared to people mm-hmm. who are super poor. Um, I mean, obviously, since all these <laughs> corporations are getting a lot of uh leeway. Uh, with the government, they can spread the wealth among their top tier. Um, right. And, you know, they can expand outside of the country, which, you know, like, mm-hmm. again, like the, the, the economy is globalizing still a lot more at this point. And so that also means that, you know, companies are leaving to do production elsewhere. And so that further complicates the matter in, you know, making sure that money trickles down to Americans is that like, it's not really, you know, they're just taking, they're making their manufacturing and production cheaper, which in some ways, you know, helps the rest of the world because, and also helps our country in producing, you know, cheaper goods. But at the same time, then you have people who are missing out on like the direct economic benefit of that company being invested into um, because it's not, again, like they're not employing people at home as much. And so I want to like touch on, you know, just certain issues within the Reagan campaign because you know, there's just so much that happens. Like you've already brought up, you know, the war on drugs. And I, unfortunately, I didn't even really like get into that because there's just so, you know, there, there's, again, like just a lot of controversy over how he handled a lot of issues. The first one being with the AIDS epidemic, which came into attention in 1981, but, but Reagan really gave no attention to AIDS until 1985, well after tens of thousands of people had died and hundreds of thousands of people had been affected. Um, it was a quick, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of hard to, you know, be impartial with this situation, especially given the fact that you've already set up this man to be somebody that is like, uh, you reap what you sow, uh, everything that is happening to you is your fault and all your actions, uh, led to where you are right now and I'm not going to help you. So it's kind of hard to argue that he saw this epidemic epidemic and the homosexuals brought it up on themselves you know yeah no there were people in his administration who actually thought that and he was not like you know he wasn't outspoken necessarily that explicitly about like you know that is what he he thought necessarily but i mean the inaction you know says a lot you know it was yeah his actions speak far far greater than his words right Again, like it was quickly identified in the early 80s that the majority of people who were infected or were being infected were were drug users and gay men. And prejudice against homosexuality was extremely high during this time, but especially within Reagan and, and his camp, which leads us to examine, you know, the similar theme of Reagan choosing who is deserving of help and who isn't, you know, and it takes him four years to really make the issue of AIDS a priority of his administration and that comes just just after he finds out, you know, his friend from his acting days, Rock Hudson, has the disease and he dies in that same year. So that really shifts like narrative in, in Reagan's head. And his administration actually does make it an issue, you know, a, a priority in the second term. But many people just feel that's too little, too late, which I mean, I would agree. <laughs> 
that that's something that again like i just it's hard to um right and be impartial about because it's just such a i mean it, it's very much resonates today it like hits our society today and that's why again it's so hard to do this kind of episode it's extremely heartbreaking if you ever watch single documentary or single you know piece on on the AIDS epidemic how people lost countless of friends family members and the suffering that many still live on today like it's it's really impactful given the fact that they had a leader leader that looked down upon them nobody's perfect nobody has zero prejudice uh, in them um, we're humans we tend to judge people period but when you are the leader of the free world and your actions or inactions can affect millions and millions of lives you should really reconsider many of your prejudice if it's going to cause the life of so many people so that's just it's very hard to get to this point and be impartial uh, regarding this president yeah yeah definitely agree with everything you said there just moving on to you know we haven't even brought up anything with uh you know foreign policy i'll first try to give him some credit you know he um with the soviet union um he took yep. a very hard line stance take down that wall <laughs> yeah he took a hard stance against the soviet union by building the largest military spending program in history in peacetime conditions you know that not is not necessarily you know something that i you know love but this effort actually has legitimate validity in leading to the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, economically, um, the USSR was falling behind the U.S. in research and technology in, in almost every space besides the military. And so the increased economic growth of the U.S. in the 1980s allowed the U.S. to invest so heavily into increased military technology and capabilities. And this increased pressure on the Soviet Union to keep up further strain their economy that was, again, not keeping up in the same way where the growth of the U.S. And someone like Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in 1985 that knew someone like him, he sparked a, a turning point in relations between the U.S. and USSR because um, he was someone who was much more reform minded, um, encouraged the reduction of nuclear arms within both countries and eventually Soviet control of the Eastern Bloc, you know, starts to crack as protests and a willingness to merge with Western society grows stronger within the region. And so this is a huge win for Reagan in foreign policy. You know, it, it, it's kind of a bold one to out just, you know, kind of, I don't know if he plans this in terms of outspending the USSR and exhaust them of the resources they needed to hold on to Eastern Europe. But you certainly, it's certainly hard to argue that that's, it didn't work. Um, because, you know, just shortly after his presidency, that's when the Berlin Wall falls, USSR is disbanded in some way, and then they become Russia in the early 90s. And so, again, this is really effective. Like, I mean, I don't think that he should have necessarily um, made the budget, get the, I mean, like, he, I mean, restructuring the budget to take away from, you know, social welfare programs, but Certainly, I mean, like for people who are, you know, kind of uh, military hawks or right wing hawks, this is a example where they can be happy about. But going into the Iran Contra affair, this is um, representing like the worst in us in the same way um, as we the U.S. sold anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles to Iran in exchange for that country's help in securing the release of Americans held hostage by terrorist groups in Lebanon. but. Um, the U.S. at this time had an arms embargo on Iran, and to make matters worse, the administration used the proceeds of the arms sale to fund a military group called the Contras in Nicaragua um, in their insurgency against their government that was deemed, like, you know, it was deemed socialist and friendly to communists, but it sparked this whole, you know, I mean, again, like, just escalated violence. Um, As was this... Was this public knowledge during the time or was this revealed afterwards? Well, Reagan lied about, I mean, well, the, the, people would argue that he didn't, but he, I mean, it was public knowledge because he said that in 1986, he denied, you know, these claims that, um, you know, the U.S. was, you know, funding the Contras, you know, through this mechanism. And then in 1987, 
he said that you know he doesn't want to believe his quote was like i don't want to believe that this is true but to my understanding this is true and so like he had a way of communicating to people where like it was easy to forgive him because oh yeah he didn't know he did (laughs) somebody went behind his back and (laughs) forged his signature Right, right. And so it was a big deal. It did decrease its popularity momentarily, but not not for long. It had a very short lasting. And is this and one I, of the few is this one of the few um covert in like it wasn't that covert, but um covert attempts to us trying to overthrow another government that oh, was no, 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 public no. knowledge during their presidency? Not not few, not few. Well, maybe public knowledge. Sorry, you guys. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say because we, we know of thousands of times that we've done it, but like we tend to find out afterwards, like when secret uh, documents are revealed or somebody snitches like 5, 10, 20 years afterwards. I didn't know that this was public knowledge while he was still in office. Yeah, yeah, I guess, it, I mean, I think it's more of a going to continue trend just like in like the modern, um, kind of like how modern day politics works. Like, I mean, we kind of were figuring out in real time somewhat of what was all happening in like Afghanistan and Iraq in the 2000s with like you know, the prison camps and torturing. And, you know, like I just think that that information has become more accessible in a quicker rate. And Reagan, like this is kind of like one of those first examples of like kind of more so finding out in real time what was going on. You guys are pointing JFK's um, like the nuclear missile crisis in Cuba too. Is that fig- uh, happening in real time? But that wasn't necessarily something that Americans were like trying to encourage. It was just something they were responding to. Even worse, um, after the Iran-Contra affair is the El Salvador or the Salvadorian Civil War. Um, you know, this was also funded by um, the American government supporting the militaristic-led government in, in El Salvador that, you know, our military trained their military um, to, you know, help hunt down, not necessarily, I mean, I, I can't make the claim that they meant for this to happen, but, you know, it, certainly they did train their military who hunted down prominent clergy in the Catholic Church, and they recruited child soldiers and committed genocidal acts uh, with the formation of death squads. And, you know, the U.S. funded, again, hundreds of millions of dollars to the the military government in El Salvador to prevent left-wing groups from winning the civil war that were deemed to be more friendly to communism. So the border situation is a very de- delicate and complex argument to have. You, you, you have the right to think, and they should cross legally, by legally. Yes, I understand all those arguments. But the hypocrisy of our political system and the growing the political and economical climate of South and Central America for their political gains. Um, and then circling back and going like, why do everybody's running away from the storm that we created down there? It's just mind boggling. Yeah. And just <clears throat> sad too, that I mean, like the lack of compassion for kind of what every people are going through in those countries is just, also, you know, there's just no, I mean, even like with the, the modern day, like approaches of like, you know, why are we funding, why are we putting so much money into this country, into this country? Well, like part of it is because like we created such a messed up system there. Like we kind of have that responsibility, but, you know, I, I think that it's just like too much for people to try to have empathy for, because, you know, how could they understand what everyday life is in somewhere like El Salvador or in the in you know Central America and so yeah you know again this is like sort of a lasting legacy he doesn't really have I mean the Soviet Union thing is is such a you know the Cold War lasted for so long it becomes such a huge win so like really the legacy of Reagan is so much stronger than his actual two terms in the office I mean again like it's somewhat fortunate to me that he rides out this wave of economic prosperity before we actually see like the real world um, consequences of his policies because it really more so comes into fruition in the 1990s and 2000s with you know corporations and wealthy executives getting you know so much more money and the income inequality problem getting so much worse and 
it's very much stemmed back to Reagan's policies and their continuation of those policies because he himself is just such a popular figure, you know, at the end of his presidency is really just, I mean, it, it sucks because like it's, it's, it's so consequential to what the Republican party is today. Like they, they don't have another like go to policy agenda. Like I would like to see two parties that are like competing in like a way where they're trying to come up with like the better ideas to, to fix problems. And really more so it's just like, how can we like ride out this president who is like really the only Republican president, let's be honest, like within the past, you know, be, 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 I mean, post Eisenhower that like had two successful terms that were pretty much unchallenged. I mean, mm-hmm. you had Nixon who had to resign, Ford who only served in two years, and George H.W. was beat. George W. had two terms, but like by the end of his second term, he's probably one of the most unpopular presidents in history. And then Trump, obviously, is not very popular. And so, you know, it's 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 kind of like, who else do you worship in the Republican Party besides Reagan? The modern example of what you need to be. And like, he does have political talents. Like, in, if you just watch like his debate moments, um, he has a lot of very well-timed phrases. You know, people, he's one of the oldest presidents in history. And I mean, I think people unfairly tried to make that an issue where like, you know, we can't elect a 73-year-old to be president. Um, and then he kind of just turned that back on people by saying, you know, I'm not going to talk about um, my opponent being too young and inexperienced to take office. I thought that was a clever, you know, counterpunch to that. But at the same time, like he, yeah, he's a salesman. He 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 really yeah. did know how to how to manipulate a crowd. Um, obviously, it's not only his theater, you know, background. Like he he knew how to take momentum and, and roll with it. A lot of theater work involves all these classes, like improvisation and thinking on your feet and and a lot of acting involves which is a kind of a cliche term but listening like you if when if you're a good actor you're listening to what the, your partner is saying so he definitely had a good ear in terms of what the public perception was of certain events so he was a reflection of how our society was feeling at the time like you said homophobia was rampant more than today so obviously he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna go against the grain and 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 say oh no we do have to help this community um there was a lot of worry that gang gang violence and drugs were taking over the 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 streets so he reflected what our society was thinking there was a lot of fear-mongering happening with russia and how communism that big uh word that has like this since the 60s 50s or 40s or 30s have we've always had that boogeyman um following us so obviously him being this figure that stood up against communism um, and making multiple speeches um just bolster him even more so he knew what we needed we as a society needed to hear during those times and he reflected our fears um and he said them out loud and, and everybody went oh yes we're afraid of that please help us with that so that's why he was so popular that's why he was able to despite despite his flaws held such a grip for decades i feel like today like you just said it like still to this day if a republican mentions reagan everybody goes like mm, yes reagan reagan yes like he is the gold standard Yeah. And so that's why, I mean, it's hard to evaluate because I mean, again, like so much of the, I just like, I can't help but think of like what the country is like today when we talk about Reagan. And like, I don't think that he necessarily like planned for the government to be like, like the parties to be extremely divided and for like things to get as bad as they are now. Um, Would you say that he is equally or more influential than Lyndon was and Monroe was in terms of how our political system looks today. I think that, I mean, well, like going off of my last episode, I think that he is well more so than, than Lyndon for sure. Because, I mean, I think that he, again, he distinguishes, he gives life to what the modern Republican Party is today. Like he, he distinguishes like kind of like, I mean, everything that we're talking about now in 2021, like we're talking about like, they're like inventing 
a cultural war in a sense. Like I'm not trying to necessarily delve into like modern politics right now, but like what is the playbook? They have a there's a democratic president right now. Economy's kind of reopening. People are more so in good vibes, and so like we're talking about for some reason like you know critical race theory being a problem like this is just a cultural issue that they're inventing but like how does reagan distinguish himself in those days is through you know cultural issues of just like again like saying that you know people just don't want to work hard people are lazy people are undeserving it's like it's sort of the same way like well people just want to rewrite the narrative of you know, our history in, you know, our education, like they're trying to like, you know, it, it, it very much like feels like the same sort of, you know, strategy that they're going for. It's like, well, let's just try to speak to Americans fears of like, you know, what could happen to the nation, the worst case scenario, like kind of like what I was saying with Nixon, like what could be the worst case scenario of this, if like protests get too out of control. And so, like, yeah, I think that he is more influential in LBJ because he, like, you know, no one, like, Democratic Party, I mean, they have, like, some references to LBJ in terms of he has really good social programs, but it's way more so to FDR, you know, like, mm-hmm. he creates the whole expansion of the federal government in that sense. And so, like, and then it's hard to even make the comparison to Monroe. Um, I think Monroe, like, foreign policy-wise, probably has that, but, like, it, again, like, that's just, like, completely too far away i think at this point to give a fair like guess on that. and so yeah it's hard because i wish that <laughs> I, I wish that like the traits about reagan um in terms of like actually trying to govern and actually trying to pass policy that like could conceivably make sense would be like more remembered upon rather than just like his punchlines because like I want a, a government that's interested in governing, right? Like I want like actual like debates on like what should be a solution to a problem. Like how should we solve like issues of climate change? But we can even agree that climate change is existing because it's like for some reason it feels like a cultural issue in some way. Like you know, like I because people don't want to like have their way of life, you know, inconvenienced, and so that's why like I'm bitter because. And, and, and also having a hard time evaluating Reagan because like there's a lot of unintended consequences that I don't think that he thought of when he was acting the way he did in terms of framing issues in a cultural manner. But at the same time, like it's, you know, today it's just so hard to to really be like uh, sensible when I'm talking about politics and just being like more straightforward. Um, yeah. Luckily, we don't have a podcast that centers around politics. Um, Neil, are you ready to wrap this up and tell me? Yeah, I'm sorry for um, ranting. No, this is (laughs) we need to vent. I ranted on the first episode, and you need to rant in this one. Uh, I guess the question that everybody is waiting for we know that currently Lyndon B. Johnson is your favorite president of all time, beating out multiple candidates. Is he gonna be able to beat out? Uh, Ronald Reagan, or is Ronald Reagan your favorite president of all time? You know, I mean, I think I would have a hard time if Reagan didn't have, again, like, he has a lot of bad foreign policy choices as well, um, along with Lyndon. And so since he kind of, like, I don't know if it's, it's not, I don't know, no one can ever, like, you know, say the, what's equal and what isn't and, like, try to, like, distinguish between what, like, you know, um, foreign policy disaster is, like, has more weight to it. But just, like, taking it all into account, obviously, I'm going to say Lyndon B. Johnson was a better president than, than Ronald Reagan. So, Wow. I did not expect you to go that route. Um, so uh, thank you for listening to two-parters of Ronald Reagan. I'm excited to move away from the 80s and um, land in a, in a more uh, distant past where I'm not so heavily emotionally evolve, uh, involved. Neil, where are you taking us next episode? I'm going to take us to the legend himself, John Tyler, president from 1841 to 1845. No. The legend. Everybody talks about John Tyler. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for liking, sharing, reviewing. Please, if you have a chance, um, go to our Instagram page and let Neil know what he missed. Uh, I think 
there should be more uh, conversation around Regan. Hopefully, we'll get some some questions or some comments. I don't know if we'll want them, but we'll, we'll we maybe maybe we'll get oh, them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. See you in two weeks. Bye. Thank you.